Um, let me ask you this morning, how many history buffs do we have in the room today? Let me see you raise your hand. Yeah, I, I love history. I love uh, reading about history especially. And, and um, you know, the Civil War has, uh, has histories, uh, one, one of the most intriguing figures in all of history. And uh, his name was General George McClellan. And he was the general in chief for uh, Abraham Lincoln during the Civil War. And the interest, interesting thing about McClellan is uh, he was a brilliant military mind. Uh, he absolutely was. He was, he was, he was brilliant and uh, he had exceptional qualifications, at least on paper, uh, to be you know, head of the armed forces for the United States Army uh, during the Civil War. It's interesting, too, that he was the youngest member to be accepted at the U.S. Military Academy. He was accepted and enrolled at West Point at the age of 15. Not only that, but he graduated top of his class. And so when he became general uh, in chief, he was a very, very good recruiter. In just four months under his leadership, recruitments for the United States Army were up 300%. And so it was absolutely clear that the men that he was leading loved him, they respected him, and they believed that they could win under his leadership. So as a consequence, it was really no surprise that Abraham Lincoln named him general-in-chief. He had the talent, he had the knowledge, he had the rapport uh, that was needed to be a tremendous leader. He also had a tremendous tactical and numerical advantage. So the Union Army had a two-to-one advantage over the Confederate Army, not only in soldiers, but in armaments and equipment. And so there was only one problem with General George McClellan, and that is he didn't want to fight. That was his only problem. He didn't want to fight. And so for weeks, uh, McClellan organized the forces, he readied his forces, he strategized his forces, and even as General Lee's army got dangerously close to the Union army, Lincoln repeatedly urged McClellan to use his tactical and numerical advantage to crush the Confederacy with one swift stroke. The problem is, is McClellan wouldn't do it. He had the knowledge, he had the strategy, he had, the, he had everything he needed. But if a military man won't use his gifts and talents and abilities to fight, then what good are those gifts and talents? And so as the story goes, after a very frustrating year for President Lincoln, he removed, Lincoln did the greatest military mind, arguably in the history of the United States, and eventually replaced him with someone of half of his military mind and stature, but who was so mean he would pick a fight with a beehive, and that general was Ulysses S. Grant. Now, church, I I share that with you all this morning because I really want to talk to us about something that's that's just absolutely critical that we understand. And, And so if the church doesn't do this one thing well, then then we fail um, completely. If we don't do this one thing well, then everything else we do is useless. And, and that one thing is really just making disciples, as Pastor Derek talked about. And so no matter how good we are at preaching sermons or having good music or building nice buildings or having creative programs, if we don't make disciples as a church, then we absolutely fail in what God has called us 
to do and to be. And so I want to spend a few minutes talking about that today. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Philippians chapter 2. We are finishing up the Go Beyond series today, and, or the Go Together series today. And I want to uh, just remind you, we've been tracking through this over the last uh, several weeks, and we've been talking about what it really means to be the church and what it means to be the church on mission that really makes disciples. And I really want to personalize it for all of us today as we, as we kind of close out this series. And we're going to read verses 19 through 24. We looked at this passage uh, a little bit last week, but I want us to read it again. I want us to come back to it one more time. So if you're willing and able, would you please stand for the reading of the Word of God? So we'll begin at verse 19. So Paul writes, I, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered of news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I know how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. The word is a light into our path and a lamp into our feet. You may be seated. Now, what I love about this passage is, and as we kind of looked at last week, and as we're going to kind of look at this week, uh, this, this morning, is what I love about this passage is the Apostle Paul talks about the character and the contribution of this man named Timothy. And he describes Timothy as a man that he, he has no one else like Timothy. Like Timothy just kind of stands out in a class by himself. And so Timothy really was a companion of Paul. He basically was a disciple of Paul. And Timothy is in the process of being trained as a future pastor and church planner. And that's what Paul is doing. Paul is raising him up. Paul is discipling him. And this is not even the only passage in the New Testament that we have where the Apostle Paul describes Timothy. In other places throughout the New Testament, Paul describes Timothy as a fellow brother, as a bondservant, as a, a, a beloved child in the faith, and as a co-equal in the Lord's work. And so what we see in this more specifically is that Paul is a, is a spiritual father to his son, his spiritual son, Timothy. Because Paul is discipling and pouring in and investing in Timothy. And so we see that Paul is grooming and developing this faith in this, in this future pastor. But I want to show you another passage of Scripture because Paul was not the only one who discipled Timothy. All right, let me show you 2 Timothy 1.5. And uh, this gives us a little bit of insight into how Timothy developed his faith. Paul writes to, to Timothy, he says, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and now I'm sure dwells in you as well. Now, I love that because what he's talking about is he's talking about Lois and Eunice, these two ladies who cultivated faith in their son and in their grandson. These two ladies spent time investing in their kids and in their grandkids. And in fact, what we see is they passed on their faith to Timothy. And the genuine faith that Paul sees in Timothy is a direct result of his mother 
and his grandmother. That's what he's saying in that passage. Now, church, we don't know a lot about Eunice and Lois. We don't know if they were key leaders in the early church. We don't know if they were major financial supporters. You know, we, we don't know any of that. My guess is that they were ordinary ladies who were faithful to Jesus and faithful to carrying out the Great Commission. And they did it in Timothy, and they made it in the New Testament because of their obedience to the Word of God. And I want to share with you today that God has called us to be faithful to Jesus and faithful to make disciples as well. That's what I want to do today, is really lay, lay that groundwork for us to convince us that we are called to be disciple makers as well. In fact, let me just show you this from Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. This is, these are Jesus' last words to us, and Matthew records them. And, and notice what it says. It says, Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Here's what I want to do this morning, church. I want to, I want to make the case this morning that the Great Commission is for every single Christian. That the Great Commission is not only for pastors and church leaders and missionaries, it's for every single one of you. And I, want to, and I want to spend a little bit of time talking about just how to do that. I want to get very practical about how to do that. So let's look at this first, the first side of this issue. And here's how I kind of worded it. Making disciples is the mission of every single Christian. It really is. Go back. Let me, let me show you this passage one more time. Matthew 28. Let's look at it one more time. Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That means he's large and in charge. That means that what he says, we do. All authority has been given to him. He says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and then teaching them to observe all that I've commanded. Now, the reason why I want to show that to you again is I want you to notice that the main verb in this, in this passage is make disciples. That is the main verb. And so the going, the teaching, and then the baptizing are all kind of, subordinate to that main verb. Those are all pieces of what it means to make disciples. Going, baptizing, and teaching everything that Jesus commanded. And so, so what we see is that Jesus' call for the church is for the church to make disciples. Now here's, here's, kind, of, here's kind of what is interesting. In America, in the United States, we have this tendency, and I, you know, I've done it too, so it's not anything new, but we have this tendency to kind of judge the effectiveness or to gauge the fruitfulness of a church by Sunday morning attendance or how much money was given in the offering. Those are kind of like the two metrics that we use. You know, just how many people are attending and then how many people are giving. And I remember when I was growing up as uh, a little kid, when we went to church, my, my family went to the Episcopal Church, and on the, on the left side of the building, right over the exit sign, there was this sign 
that recorded last week's attendance and last week's offering. Anybody ever seen this in a church? Yeah, yeah, we've all seen that, right? And it's kind of like a scoreboard over there. And so, and so if the number of attendance and the number of offering was really high, then, you know, everybody was kind of excited about that, you know. But then if it started getting low for a few weeks, we're like, oh, man, we better kick it in here, you know, because the scoreboard, we're not winning on the scoreboard. Now, the thing that I want you to see is this. What I want you to understand is this, that the criteria which any church should me- measure its success is not how many new names were added to the role. And it's not even, not even how, you know, how much the budget has increased. But really, the measure of fruitfulness is how many Christians are living on mission, how many Christians are making disciples who make disciples. That's, real, that's a much more difficult metric. But that's actually the metric that uh, God is calling us to focus on. And so it's interesting to me that the word Christian is only used three times in the entire New Testament. But the word disciple is used 281 times in the New Testament. Now there is a significant implication there. And the implication is this, that, that Jesus is looking for disciples. Men and women, students, boys and girls who are following Jesus, who are actively pursuing Jesus. That's what a disciple is. And that's what, the call, that's what the church is called to do and to be. In other words, heaven doesn't celebrate over church attendance. Heaven celebrates over discipleship. And so at Stones, you know, we have, you know, and just praise God for this. But we have, we have well over 400 adults in D groups, discipleship groups. And, and at Stones, you know, we, we, do, we do these groups different than most other churches. In a lot of other churches, small groups are all about just getting together and fellowshipping. You know, just getting together and kind of hanging out. And there might be a lesson and you might share kind of your thoughts on that verse or that teaching or whatever. But we, we do it a little bit different here at Stones. And the vision that we have for our discipleship groups is that each group is led by a discipler who is pouring in and investing in their group. And you ask, well, why is, why is that so important? Because that's what Jesus did in the New Testament. You see, we want to raise up disciples. We want to raise up disciples. Now, it's not wrong to get together in fellowship. That's not what I'm saying. But we want, to be, we want to be spending our time with gospel intentionality and pouring in to the lives of other people. See, another way of kind of thinking about it is, have you noticed in your backyard how weeds can spring up overnight in the spring and summer? Have you ever noticed that? Absolutely. But it takes 100 years to grow an oak tree. And so what we are about here at Stones is growing disciples, raising up disciples, and we're in it for the long haul. Now, the priority of making disciples is not really just for the church. Because if I stopped right there, it would be very tempting for you to think, okay, well, I'm glad our church is committed to making disciples. I'm glad that's what they do. You know, the pastors and church leaders and uh, you know, the, the staff, that, that's, that's kind of what they do. They make disciples. What I want to share with you today is you've been commissioned to do the very same thing. You really have as a Christ follower. 
you have the responsibility and the calling to make disciples. I think some of us, we read the Great Commission in Matthew 28, and we think, okay, well, that's just for pastors and you know, Christian leaders and missionaries. That's just kind of what they do. I'll just kind of leave it up to them. But here's the thing, church. We're called to teach you everything Jesus commanded. That's what we're called to do. And what has he commanded you to do? Go and make disciples. So that commission can't just be for us because we're called to teach everything he commanded. We're called to teach you every, everything that he, that he uh, uh, commanded to all of us. And that, that, is, that is part of your, your commissioning. Now look at John 15, 8. Let me share this with you. John writes, he writes this, By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Now, how is the Father glorified according to Jesus? Well, we're, we are glorified, we glorify God through bearing fruit. And what is the fruit? Making disciples. That's what it is. That is how, that is how God is glorified. He wants us to bring in a harvest. He wants us to, to use our gifts and our time and our talents to raise up people that are following Jesus. So here's the question that I have. Who is your Timothy? Who are you discipling? Who are you pouring into and investing in? As we think about Derek's object lesson of a chain reaction, where are you in that chain? And who's going to react because of God's working in your life and God's influence through your life in their life? You see, you could ask it this way. Can you point to any other person in our church who is here in our church because of your influence? You see, God has called us to make disciples. And his strategy for this is not just giving one guy a preaching gift and then, you know, a, another gal a, a music gift. And, and then that's how, you know, people come to Christ. That's how we make disciples. No, he's called all of us to be about the business of the Father, and that is raising up disciples. I love what Robert Coleman says. He's written a book. It's a classic book called The Master Plan of Evangelism. Listen to what Robert Coleman says about this. He says, when will the church learn this lesson? Preaching to the masses, although necessary, will never suffice in the work of preparing leaders for evangelism. Nor can occasional prayer meetings and training classes for Christian workers do this job. Individual women and men are God's method. God's plan for discipleship is not something, it is someone. And that someone is you. That someone is you. Now, I know what you're thinking because I've done this long enough. And, and so I kind of know what you're thinking. Some of you are, you know, you're watching online or you're here today and you're like, Scott, I'm just lucky to be in church today. All right. I, I mean, I, I get it that maybe I'm kind of called to, to, to be a, a disciple that raises up disciples. I get that. But man, I'm just trying to get through the week. Instead of making disciples, I'm just trying to make it through the week. And Scott, you're just kind of lucky uh, that I'm even at church today. I mean, it was a miracle of me getting here this morning. And I understand that. I get that. I've lived that. I've done that before, all right? But let me, let me just kind of ask it this way. Have you ever had one of those mornings where you just wake up in the morning, and as soon as you wake up, life just slaps you in the face? 
You know what I mean? Like as soon as you get out of bed, you realize you're running late. The kids are running late. The kids don't have their homework done. You got to get them to school. Uh, you know, the, the cable company is called and they've overcharged you $700. And so you know that you're going to spend four and a half days with someone in New Delhi, India, trying to get that money back, right? You, you guys know what I'm saying? And, and, and so you just kind of have one of those days and then your boss calls. And so you've got to have something that you're not even responsible for completed by 8.15 in the morning. And so by the time you get through that day, you just, you're just ready to collapse and you didn't do a single thing on your to-do list. And like, you've, you've done so much that day, you can't even remember everything you did. Anybody else ever done that? I've, I, I've definitely done that. Here's the thing that I don't want for you. What I don't want for you is for you to get to the end of your life and you realize I did all of these urgent things, but I never did the one thing Jesus commissioned me to do. And that is to make disciples. I don't want you to have that kind of regret in your life. And so I want you to really see that this is a huge part of what God has called us to be and to do as Christians. Now, some of you push back and you say, well, Scott, I, I mean, I work 50 plus hours and, you know, I've got kids and a wife and, you know, that's 5,000 hours, you know. And so uh, I've got all of this, all of these things that I've got to do. And so I can't add one more thing. I just don't have the time. And I get that. But can I challenge you on something? Can I challenge you not to think about something that you just add to your already busy schedule? Can I, can I challenge you to think about the fact that your work and your family are the very platforms where you are to live out what it, what it means to make disciples? Like what if God gave you the skills that he gave you as a nurse, as a teacher, you know, as a as a doctor, as a lawyer, right, as a plumber, or as a business owner, or as a stay-at-home mom? What if God gave you the skills to do those things, not just to earn a living, but to make a difference? And so I'm not advocating that you add another thing to your life. What I'm advocating is changing how you see how you're going to spend your Monday morning tomorrow, and your Monday afternoon, and your Monday night, because God has called us to make disciples and to be open to that, to be looking for that every single day. I mean, what if you saw your job tomorrow as a place, not where you just collect a paycheck, but that God has sovereignly brought people into your life so that you can disciple them and share God's good news? What if school, what if you changed your perspective about how you view school, that you would see your classmates as, as people that God loves them, that, that your school is a mission field. You know, what if, what if mom and dad, you saw your kids' sports teams this fall as sovereignly orchestrated by a glorious God, put you in close proximity with other parents for extended periods of time, standing around watching your kids play, maybe that's an opportunity for you to share the gospel. You guys track it with me this morning? So it's really just living life with your eyes wide open to what God is doing in the world. And you know what God is doing? God is working underneath the soil, underneath the surface. He's working in people's hearts. Sometimes we see it, sometimes we can't see it, but he's working to bring people to himself.
All right, so that's, that's the mission. Let me just take, let me give you four ways to do this practically. All right, I want to just kind of get right down in the trenches with us today uh, because, because I get it. You're like, oh man, this is kind of overwhelming. You know, this is, this is kind of scary. But let me, let me kind of take the, the overwhelming part of it out as much as I can. Four ways to be a disciple maker. Number one, here's, here's kind of what I said. Acknowledge Jesus' mandate. Just acknowledge his mandate is for you. So it's not just for me. It, it, it really isn't just for me. It is, it is really for all of us. We need to understand that the Great Commission is for every single Christian. That, and so when we own this assignment, then we can run to God for help in the assignment. Because we know it's overwhelming, right? We know it's a little scary to kind of even think about this, what I'm talking about. But if you just begin and say, you know what, I, I just own this, this, this mandate. I own the, the Great Commission. This is what I need to be doing. Once you get to that place, then you can turn to Jesus and say, I really need your help to do this now. And that is exactly the point of the Christian life. Let me show you this from Mark 1.17. Because Mark, the gospel writer, really gives us the picture on this. He, said, he records uh, what Jesus said to the disciples early on. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. So really, so really what happens here is the disciples follow Jesus and Jesus will turn them into fishers of men. So really our responsibility is just to intentionally follow Jesus and God will give us exactly what we need to carry out his great commission. That's what he wants us to do. He wants us to see that, that Jesus is our power source for this. That Jesus is our equipping strength for this. And so a lot of Christians will kind of push back and they'll say, well, Scott, I, you know, I'm just trying to be faithful. I, I'm not going to worry about being fruitful. I'm just going to be faithful. But I'm not going to worry about being fruitful. I'm not going to worry about you know, raising up disciples or making disciples. Well, it's interesting because Charles Spurgeon who's the, the famous preacher in England in the 1800s, he said, he said this about a fisherman. He said, you know, a fisherman may not catch fish, but a true fisherman is not going to be okay with that. He's, he's going he's to cry out, I got to catch a fish. I got to catch a fish. And I think what's happened in the church is we're okay with not catching fish. Oh, we'll just let somebody else do that. And meanwhile, there are people swarming you where, who God is working in their life, but you've already just kind of said, ah, that's not for me. I'm not going to worry about it. I'm just going to kind of do my thing. And so I think one of the greatest joys in all of life is having the opportunity to share Christ with someone, to disciple them, and you're, and you're just aware of the presence of God speaking through you in the life of someone else. And then not only that, but just seeing them come to Christ because you watered the seed or, you know, you got to pick the fruit or whatever, man. That, there's, just, there's just few things better than that. So number one, we need to acknowledge Jesus' mandate. Number two, we need to accept Jesus' method. We need to accept Jesus' method. And so Derek touched on this uh, in the video. And, and the method is really life on life. The method is just like you saw in his object lesson, one life intersecting with another and another and another. And then it produces this beautiful, grace-filled chain reaction of, of life change. It is life on life. It's one person influencing another. Robert Coleman says this. This is beautiful. He says, whether he was addressing the multitudes that pressed upon him 
or arguing with the Pharisees who, who sought to ensnare him, or speaking to some lonely beggar along the road, the disciples were close at hand to observe and to listen. And through the manner of personal demonstration, every aspect of Jesus' personal discipline of life was bequeathed to his disciples. One living sermon is worth a hundred explanations. So these disciples are literally watching Jesus influence through life on life. They lived with him. They ate with him. They followed him around every step of the day. When they had a question, they asked him. And he told them. And so this is the secret for all the ages. It is simply one life reproducing itself into another life. And so what this means is this, that God has put your classmates in your sphere of influence. God has sovereignly put your coworkers in your sphere of influence. Do you know that God has orchestrated your whole neighborhood the way he wants it to be? So you live around people that God has placed you in their sphere of influence. God has done that in his sovereignty. So here's the question, church. Are you, are you open? Are you open to sharing your life? Are you open to one life influencing another life? And you're like, well, how do I do this? It's really simple. You, you, could, you can invite someone to church and invite them to go to lunch afterwards because people like to eat. Um, that's a great way to do it. You could, you could uh, and this is kind of a lost art in the United States, but hospitality is a great means of just sharing life and sharing the gospel. Just inviting a family over to your house or someone over to your house to share a meal. And uh, there's just something about even a meal that breaks down barriers and, and, and brings this incredible connection between two people. You could just invite someone to coffee one day and then just share your story of how you came to Christ. You could just share the difference that Jesus has made in your life. And you don't have to be really pushy about it. You could just sit down and say, well, you know, part of what I wanted to do today and just getting coffee with you is I just wanted to share with you the story of how I came to Christ. And you just describe your life before you, you were a Christian. You describe how you became a Christian and just very simply the difference Christ has made in your life. You could do that in two minutes. You could do it in probably 20 minutes or some time length in between. And so it's just a matter of being intentional and being willing to open up your life. Now, some Christians will, they push back and say, well, you know, Scott, I just don't have a great story. You know, I just, you know, I got saved when I was nine and I've been following Jesus ever since. And, you know, my life's just kind of been just straight shot, you know, with that. And here's the thing that I would say to this. And, and you guys have heard me say this in the past. Never curse the story that God has given you. If that's the story of God working in your life, then that is the story of his grace. Never look down on that. And the reality is, is people in our society are not looking for sensationalism. They're looking for the real deal. They're looking, for, especially in the political chaos that we're in, you know, the, the COVID chaos that we're in, the uncertain. They're just looking for something real that they can build their life on. And church, you all have that. And, uh, and so you got to really accept Jesus' plan. Here's the third thing that I would say is if you want to make disciples, appeal to Jesus for boldness. Appeal to Jesus for boldness. 
you will need boldness to make disciples. And boldness comes through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's where it comes. It comes through the filling of the Holy Spirit. What we see in the, in the Gospels, you see 12 disciples who are scared to death. I mean, they're in hiding. They are running from Jesus or running from the, you know, the, the people that persecuted Jesus. They are in hiding. And all of a sudden, they are filled with the Spirit in Acts chapter 2. And you see the difference the Spirit of God makes in their life. Because just a couple of chapters down from there, Peter and John, who were once frozen with fear, are now sharing the gospel with tremendous boldness. So much boldness that they were arrested for preaching the gospel. And I want you to notice Acts 4.13. I want you to see this. Notice how Peter and John were described after, after they were arrested. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. Now, why were they astonished? Because they're of their boldness. They couldn't believe the boldness that they had. And why were they bold? Well, it tells us, Luke does, they recognized that they had been with Jesus. So the more time that we're spending with Jesus in his word and praying, the more of his spirit that we have. And so, and so that's, that's what we see. Boldness, church, listen, it's not a constant. Boldness is up and down in our lives. It really is. And, and, so, and so to be bold, we have to keep praying for boldness. So what we see in the New Testament is the Apostle Paul is constantly asking for prayers from the churches, that he would continue to be bold. Because boldness is not a constant, steady thing. It's up and down. Sometimes you feel it, sometimes you don't. And so you need to be praying for it always. And so, so when Peter and John were arrested, they were thrown into prison. They go back and meet with the early Christians in Jerusalem. They begin to tell them, Peter and John do, about the fact that they are arrested and uh, they were thrown into jail. And so it just, a light bulb kind of went off for the early Christians in Jerusalem, thinking that persecution and possible execution would be the result of their faith and devotion to Jesus. So what I love about this is what it tells us in Acts 4, 29 and 31 that the early church prayed for. Listen to, the, listen to what Luke tells us. And now, Lord, this is, this is kind of what they're praying. Look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. And when they had prayed, the place in which they had gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and then they continued to speak the word of God with boldness. And so they are, they are recognizing their need to be bold and that boldness comes from Jesus. And so we need to be always praying for that boldness. And... Uh, and I think, it's, I think it's important just to kind of recognize this. Uh, we shouldn't think that every time boldness is required, that we're going to feel this overwhelming swell of confidence in us at just the right moment. Okay, it's not how it works. Here's, how, here's more realistically how it works. You're praying for boldness and you're nervous and you just got to step out in faith and then the Spirit comes and strengthens you. You just got to step out and overcome that little bit of fear. And if, 
If you'll do that and you'll recognize that this is how the Holy Spirit works when we step out in faith, he will hold us up and he will give us uh, the confidence that we need. You know, uh, my late father-in-law, Pastor Woody Church, uh, he, was, he was always bold. Uh, so, he was so winsome, but he was all, always bold in sharing his faith uh, with Christ. And I think it came from not only reliance on the Holy Spirit, obviously it came from that, but it also came from perspective that he had. And he gained perspective when he was a medic in Vietnam. He served during the Vietnam War. He was a medic. And so he took care of wounded soldiers as they came into the aid station. He also, there were times when he would get on a helicopter, they would go fly and evac a, a wounded soldier out. And, you know, they're landing and evacuating this soldier out and they're getting shot at. Okay, so bullets are flying everywhere. He's working on a guy. He's trying to help a guy. And what Woody would do is he would always ask the soldier if he was if he was conscious, he would say, would you mind if I just prayed with you? And, you know, when you're wounded and you're getting shot at, nobody ever turns that that request down. You know that? And he got to pray and counsel and encourage so many guys under fire that he realized he loved doing that. And as a result, God, he knew God was calling him into the ministry. So as soon as he got out of Vietnam, he started seminary and became a pastor. Now, here's the thing, church. He wasn't worried about what those guys thought of him. Because in that moment, he had tremendous clarity of what was most important. You know, when you're in a life or death situation, there's only one thing that's important. Are you right with God? That's the only thing that's important. Everything else is secondary to that. We need the same kind of perspective. We're not getting shot at, but it's just as important that we, under, that we understand that and that we're living uh, that way. Um, everybody get it? Good. Let me, let me just kind of close with this because I'm running over. The last one I would say is this. You, you need to abandon all excuses. You need to abandon all excuses. Uh, and as a pastor, I've seen, I've seen so many excuses. I've got a number of them written here. Let me just share with you one. Okay, this is the most prominent excuse that people have for not making disciples, for not being obedient to the Great Commission. This is what they say. Well, I'm just going to witness with my life. I'm going to witness with my life. I'm not going to witness with my words. I'm going to witness with my life. Church, can I just tell you that the gospel presentation is not, look how great my life is. The gospel presentation is the opposite. My life was a train wreck and Jesus died on the cross and saved me from my sins. That is, that is the gospel. You see, the gospel require, requires words. And we've all heard the quote, uh, allegedly from St. Francis of Assisi, that says, preach the gospel, if necessary, use words. Church, it's necessary. Jesus, in John chapter 1, is called the word. Jesus spoke all of creation through the power of his word. People need to know that Jesus lived for them, that he died for them, and that he rose for them, and he wants to save them. And the only way they're going to know that is through somebody telling them. The only way they can come to faith in Christ is somebody sharing that gospel. So I want to challenge you to do that today. I want to challenge you just to begin. Begin your Monday morning, to begin begin tomorrow asking God to give you an opportunity asking God to open your eyes to people that 
that are open to give you some way, some, some means. Now, if you're a school teacher, I'm not telling you to, you know, stand in front of your class and say, all right, kids, now you better turn or burn, okay? I'm not, I'm not, I don't want you to get fired. And if you're a dental assistant, I, I'm not here to tell you you're working on somebody's mouth and you need to say, now that I've got you pinned down, can I tell you about Jesus, you know? Um, but you can look for opportunities. You can work within the environment that you're in. You can look at the hearts and the eyes and, the, and, and just the words of people and, and, give them, and give them really good news. So I want to just challenge all of us to do this. Can you imagine, church, what would happen if we all prayed and asked, God, this week, give us an opportunity to share the good news with whoever will listen. You know, a great way to do this, and we've even provided for you to do this, if this is kind of nerve-wracking for you, a great way to get started is just pray and go. Just do pray and go this week. I mean, it can't get any simpler than that. You just pray for your neighbor, leave a door hanger on their door saying, we prayed for you. And I imagine God will do some amazing things if you just be willing to take a step, a step of faith. Let's pray together. So God, I just thank you for the opportunity to speak of you. Lord, we're living in a time in our country when we're so bold about speaking about our political preferences or our opinions on this or that, what's going on in our, in our country today. And for some reason, we're just hesitant to talk about the most important thing in the history of the world. And so God, I just ask that, that our church that our body of believers, the body of Christ right here, that we would be faithful to do the one thing you've called us to do, and that's make disciples. So God, help us to do that and help us to do it for your glory and in the power of the Holy Spirit. You, you haven't called us to be obnoxious. You've not called us to be overbearing and insensitive. You just want us to be joyful and confident and loving. And so help us to do that and to be that. And we thank you. And all of God's people said, amen.